Future City is made possible by McCormick and Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at McCormickCorporation.com. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this show, we're discussing COVID-19 and how different jurisdictions are responding to the pandemic. Later in the show, we'll hear about how the Indian state of Kerala used aggressive contact tracing and a unique alignment of government, civil society, activists, and volunteers to keep coronavirus infections low. To start today's show, I'm joined by Dr. Lena Wen. Dr. Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner and is a new contributing columnist for the Washington Post. And in full disclosure, she is a longtime friend. Dr. Wen, thank you so much for joining us. Wes, it's my great pleasure and honor to be joining you today. Thank you so much. First thing I want to do is just start uh, that our listeners understand what is the scope of COVID-19 and the scope of the COVID-19 crisis that we're seeing in the United States right now? Well, COVID-19 is the worst pandemic, the worst public health catastrophe that we have seen in our lifetimes. It is the worst that we've seen in the last 100 years. We've already had in the U.S., and as of the time that we're talking, we've already had over 85,000 Americans die. And I think at some point these numbers get so big that we lose track of what that means. But we are talking about a, a pandemic, an infectious disease that is claiming more lives every single day with no end in sight. We do not yet have a vaccine. We don't have a cure. We have some hope for treatment, but not even proven treatments at this time. And the only thing that's keeping this virus in check is our own ability to social distance, to keep away from one another. And the moment those social distancing guidelines come down, that means that we will have more viral transmission, more infections, more hospitalizations, and unfortunately, more deaths. And it seems like one of the most complicated things about COVID-19 is, to your point, how little we still know about it, right? So we, we don't even have a full understanding of how this virus moves. We have, uh, we have ideas, we have, we have thoughts, we have some data behind it, but it's still a pretty enigmatic virus that we're studying here. That's a really good point, Wes, because we have to keep in mind, as much as this is in the news every single day, that we've only known about COVID-19 for, what, less than half a year. And so all the experiments and science that, um, that we now know about COVID is relatively new and is continually changing. So, for example, in the last few weeks, we're now finding out that even though this is a respiratory virus, it's transmitted through the respiratory route, through droplets, that it doesn't just affect the respiratory system. There are young, previously healthy people who are dying from strokes, there are now children who have this strange inflammatory disorder affecting their blood vessels. And that we also know that this is a disease that affects the kidneys, the, um, the, the intestines, um, the heart in ways that we're just beginning to understand. And all this is to say that we should take this very seriously. So for all those who will say things like, well, this is just like the flu, it is not like the flu. 
It is not like the flu in how many lives it's claiming. It's not like the flu in what the trajectory of this disease is going to be. It's not like the flu in how severe it is. And this is all in the context of we don't have any idea what the long-term effects of COVID are going to be. We have no idea what recovery from this disease even looks like. We should take this extremely seriously and know that we should do everything in our power to still practice social distancing, even as states are reopening. That does not mean that we now have a free license to do all the things that we did before COVID-19. This is not the time to schedule playdates or gatherings or dinner parties. This is the time that we should be taking things very seriously because social distancing, after all, is a privilege that not everyone has. What thoughts and and guidance do you have for not just elected officials and and decision makers on this, but also individuals as they're going through this process and thinking about what exactly that means to loosen restrictions or what exactly does that mean to reopen parts of an of of an economy? Uh, You know, what what is your thinking as you're hearing more and more people are saying that it is safe to now uh, to now go down this process? The first thing that I think about is that it's not safe. We are reopening against the guidance of public health experts. In fact, we're reopening against the initial guidelines as set out by the White House Coronavirus Task Force. They had initially laid out the guidelines for reopening. And frankly, even though none of the states in this country have met those guidelines, more than 48 states are announcing reopening in some way. Now, it is what it is. I understand that there are economic reasons and other factors at play, but we are not doing this based on good science and public health advice. So it is not actually safe to reopen at this time. But that said, if this is happening anyway, then we each have to do our part in being as safe as possible, thinking about this in some ways as harm reduction in public health, that if we have to engage in risky behaviors, at least let's try to reduce that risk as much as possible. So I would say, first of all, Don't see this as a license to go back to life as normal. If you have to go back to work, that's one thing. But if you do have to go back to work, ask your employer about what are the practices that they are putting into place to make the workplace as safe as possible for you. Are there different cleaning procedures? Are there social distancing guidelines being followed so that now there are are staggered shifts? Um, Are there changes in ventilation? Are masks now required at work? We know that masks can can, um, not only protect ourselves, but all other people around us if we all consistently wear masks. So what are the protocols now being followed at work? Know that risk is cumulative. So just because you now have to go to work doesn't mean that you now have to expose yourself by also having all these social events too. Still, there is a risk of virus transmission every time you interact with other people And so the more that you can reduce your individual risk, the more that you are protecting your loved ones and actually everyone in your community, too. So if you can avoid public transportation, do so. If you do not have to go to a restaurant or other crowded areas, do not go and do in-person dining or other things because there is still risk in, in doing this. And again, above all else, don't have social events and other things that are um, that are voluntary and are um, and are optional because we may have to go to work but again social distancing is not a privilege that everybody has there are many essential workers who do have to go to work and so the more you can stay away from others the more you're actually protecting all of society too
We weren't the first country to really be hit hard, even though when you look at the numbers that we're seeing within the United States are just absolutely staggering. But there are other countries who have been, you know, have been going through this and we're seeing this prior to the United States when you're looking at, uh, you know, how, how and when they have been hit. Are, are there other countries that have been doing really efficient work when it comes to testing, contact tracing, quarantining, uh, other places that can offer models that we should try to understand and emulate? We know from the experience of other countries that we can contain COVID-19. I think this is why public health experts like me are so frustrated with what's happening in the U.S. It's not that this is some enemy that we just have no way of beating and we just have to succumb. We don't have to. There is a playbook for how other countries have done this. We know that what is necessary is testing, tracing, isolation that you reduce the number of infections to a low enough level through social distancing. Then you're able to find every new case through widespread testing. You can find, identify all their contacts that, uh, that they were in touch with during their period where they were infectious. And then you can quarantine and isolate those contacts and those individuals who are ill. I mean, we know how we can do this. And this is, I think, how frustrating it is that we have seen in other countries that this approach is effective. We've seen in Asian countries, in Australia, in New Zealand, in European countries, that they have been able to, to prevent all these deaths from occurring that we're now seeing in the U.S. And one could say, look, hindsight is twenty twenty. Maybe at the beginning of this crisis, we didn't know what to do. We can certainly excuse the mistakes and oversights that were made earlier. But once we knew what needed to be done... The fact that we have basically come halfway and said we're going to do social distancing, but at this point, we're now giving up on it. We're saying we know what needs to be done, but we're not doing it. That is just shocking, and I think it's such a tragedy because all those sacrifices made by people have been in vain, and we are now knowingly letting people die. Now knowingly compromising human life, compromising American lives, despite what we're seeing and despite what the evidence is showing us. That's right, because we are not following the science. We are specifically going against the guidance of public health. We're now seeing also scientists, doctors, public health experts who are the best in the world, who work for the CDC, who work for our federal government, being silenced. Um, I mean, just the CDC, for example, we turn to you for guidance as the former health commissioner. I turn to the CDC all the time for very specific guidance. That's what they're good at. They don't equivocate. They look at the research and they say, here's what you need to do to be safe. Here's what you need to do to protect your community. I look for the CDC for that kind of information. But unfortunately, the guidance now coming out of the CDC equivocates. It talks about how, if feasible, you do this. We encourage you to do this rather than saying, this is what you need to do in order to safely reopen. And I think businesses, individuals, schools, religious institutions, we look to the CDC for that kind of specific guidance. Because if we're going to reopen anyway, we should at least try to do so as safely as possible. And that's just not what's happening now. Some of the people who are protesting the stay-at-home orders uh, are using places like Sweden as an example of how to respond to the crisis without shutting down major parts of the economy. What is the lesson from Sweden when it comes to COVID-19? And what, if anything, can we learn from it? Well, all we have to do is look at the numbers coming out of Sweden compared to other countries, that their death rates are many orders of magnitude higher than comparable countries, and frankly, than what they should have been. 
the argument for what's happening in Sweden is they're trying to do something called herd immunity. The point is to try to get enough people in the community, generally around 60 to 80 percent of the community, to develop antibodies in order to protect everybody else. So if that percentage can get infected, the theory is that you're now going to be basically immune. Everybody in the community is going to be immune. There is a big problem with that hypothesis, though, which is that we have no idea right now whether you actually get immunity. We do not know, based on the science, that after you contract COVID-19, you become immune and are protected from it. And so that is a big problem. But even if you do become immune at an infection rate of 60 percent, that means that 200 million Americans would have to be infected with COVID-19 for that to happen. And with a death rate of 1 percent, that means that we would have to count on 2 million Americans dying in order for us to reach herd immunity. Now, I just cannot imagine any of us choosing that path if it is our loved one who would be among those who are sacrificed. And this is why that voice of science is so important. I mean, I'm hearing from politicians, um, elected leaders who unfortunately are not following the science, and they are saying things um, like, well, it's only old people who are getting ill. First of all, that should be a problem in and of itself, because why are we not right. valuing our, our older individuals? But also, it's just not true. We're seeing 30-year-olds, 40-year-olds present with strokes as their first symptom of COVID-19. They're now not able to speak or move a part of their body potentially permanently. We're seeing children in the ICU dying from unexplained disorders. I mean, we have to take this extremely seriously because this is a time when our shared humanity matters more than anything else. We are all in this together. What's good for one person is good for us all. There has been this increase in anti-Chinese racism as people, and frankly, egged on by many uh, people who are sitting in positions of power, are blaming China or Chinese people for, for the outbreak. As a Chinese immigrant who's working in public health, how do you recommend people push back against this kind of xenophobia, this kind of racism, and the kind of ignorance that continues to foster and foment and show itself in some really dangerous ways in our society? Mm, that's such a, a great question. Um, you know, I, I'm a physician, um, and at the end of the day, I have to push back with the science and the evidence. And in this case, I think we can push back. If we ever heard comments that touch upon what you said, I think we should say this is a disease that affects all of us. There's no one who is immune. It doesn't matter what you look like, where you came from. We're all at risk. The World Health Organization has a, a, a way to name diseases for a reason, because we don't want to stigmatize individuals or people or geographical origin. And so we should all do our part to refer to this disease as COVID-19, as a coronavirus, and emphasize that it's at times like these that, again, our helping each other and being together with one another is more important than ever. And, you know, one final question I have for you is, you know, you, you've been on the front lines and have just been a national treasure when it comes to the, the issue of opioid addiction and the opioid epidemic as well. Implementing Baltimore's overdose prevention and response plan when you were the health commissioner here in Baltimore. How has the COVID-19 crisis and the social distancing and economic downturn that came with it 
How has that specifically affected people who are struggling with opioid addiction? And, and when you think about the level of impact that that has also had on our society and continues to have on our society, how do we make sure that these other issues that people are dealing with, such as opioid addiction, as a health issue, how do we make sure that those things don't get pushed off of a back burner when we know that these are still issues that people, many people, our neighbors, our friends, are still wrestling with on a daily basis? This is a really good point, Wes, because we should not just be thinking about the effect of COVID-19 on patients who get COVID. Of course, it's also on their families and their loved ones, but it's also on the individuals who otherwise would have sought care for their healthcare conditions that are now suffering too. Healthcare continues to happen. People still have heart attacks. They still need treatment for their diabetes and certainly for for addiction, for the disease of addiction as well. Already patients with addiction, with mental health issues and other illnesses struggle with access. Already they struggle with stigma. Already they they struggle with not being able to get the care that 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 they need that should be valued the same way as any other aspect of healthcare. And of course, these same individuals who face these disparities are facing even greater barriers during this time of COVID too. So I suspect that in time to come, we're going to look back at, at this period and see excess deaths, excess suffering because of the effect of COVID on individuals with all these other diseases as well. And I, I also hope that in time, we'll, um, we, we will devote our time and attention to these areas that unfortunately have long been neglected, but I think there is a light that is shown upon them now. You've been listening to Future City here on WYPR, and I've been speaking with Dr. Lena Wen. Dr. Wen is an emergency physician and public health professor at George Washington University. She previously served as Baltimore's health commissioner and is a contributing columnist to the Washington Post. Dr. Wen, Lena, thank you for your voice and for your leadership before, now, and also in the future. You are so treasured and we are so grateful. Thank you so much, Wes. The same right back at you. We have to take a quick break, but don't go away. When we come back, we'll turn the focus to Baltimore and Maryland and hear how the city and state have responded to the COVID-19 crisis. Then we'll hear about how one state in Southern India has used aggressive contact tracing and a unique alignment of government, civil society, activists, and volunteers to keep coronavirus infections low. Stay tuned. Welcome back. I'm Wes Moore, and you're listening to Future City here on WYPR, the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this show, we're discussing COVID-19 and how different jurisdictions are responding to the pandemic. Later in the show, we'll hear about how the Indian state of Kerala used aggressive contact tracing and a unique alignment of government, civil society, activists, and volunteers to keep coronavirus infections low. So now we are thrilled to be joined by Dr. Joshua Sharstein. He is the Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. He is also the former Baltimore City Health Commissioner and also the former State Health Secretary. Dr. Sharstein, thank you so much for joining us and for your continued leadership to our communities. Thanks so much for having me. First, if you can just give us a sense on how the city of Baltimore has been affected by the coronavirus so far. 
the city of Baltimore, um, like many cities, had a serious challenge with the coronavirus. There have been uh, many cases and deaths in the city, and it has led to a stay-at-home order, which has profoundly disrupted the normal life of the city um, in many different ways. There's huge amounts of unemployment. There's serious problems with food insecurity. We have managed to avoid the catastrophic situation of the healthcare system collapsing or being overwhelmed, but we're left with a very difficult challenge to work our way through. You know, in Maryland, there are more cases um, in the D.C. metro area than there are in the Baltimore metro area. And um, that uh, exactly why that is, I don't know if anybody has a great answer for. There may have been uh, more cases initially, um, and so there was more spread before people realized uh, how bad the situation was going to be and before the stay-at-home orders started, um, which was able to quiet things down. But the risk is very high in the Baltimore area, just as it is in the D.C. metro area. I will add, though, that we do see this very serious disparity with both African-American and Latino communities, particularly uh, hard hit by COVID. And they're hard hit in two ways, uh, higher rates, I think, overall of illness, and then higher chance of death for people who are sick. So it's really a double hit. And um, there are different reasons for that, but I think they fall under the umbrella of the virus really exploiting uh, weaknesses in the equity of our society that existed before the pandemic. COVID-19 is something that can impact everybody, but it is not impacting everybody the same. Certain communities are getting hit harder, and you are, you are absolutely right, both on transmission rates and also on, on, on the death rates. You touched on why we see uh, you know, some of the particularly vulnerable uh, you know, communities within African-American and, and Latinx communities, but what are some of the other things that we have to be able to do to be able to address the disparities, both on helping people understanding the disparities exist at all, but then also being able to actually structurally address what needs to be done in order to make sure that these things don't have to be real? I think we should take these two things a little bit separately. Why some people are more likely to get sick in the first place, mm -hmm and then why they're more likely to die if they get COVID. And if you take the first one, well, why are people in certain communities more likely to get sick? Well, it has to do with how the virus spreads. The virus spreads when people are in close contact with others. And so we see, for example, in immigrant communities where there are a lot of people living together in the same house or there are uh, laborers where there are like, you know, five people living in the same room because they've come here to, to earn money maybe send money back to their, their countries, that there are enormously high rates of COVID transmission and including deaths. And so that's certainly one reason. People who don't have enough money to be able to, to stay um, at home, like is being recommended, they have to go out to get food. That is another reason that people may be more likely to get sick. And then, of course, there are people who are working essential jobs and low-wage essential uh, workers Think about people who work in um, convenience stores or gas stations. They um, have suffered terribly and are much more likely to get sick. So uh, often without the appropriate protective equipment. So it has to do with the nature of their work, the nature of their um, housing, and uh, the fact that 
when you don't have resources, it's much harder to just stay away from from other people like it's being recommended. And so, you know, solutions to those different issues are complicated, but um, there are some short term solutions for the COVID epidemic. There's some longer term solutions. The short term solutions include really helping people who are sick um, not be in environments where they're around uh, other people. And, and so you can see the use of temporary hotels to um, help people so that they're not just making their entire household sick. That's a special, especially valuable if they're multi-generational households and you have older uh, people there who could really um, get very sick. Another important thing is is to be able to, to make sure people have adequate money for food and they have food. And you see other countries dealing with similar challenges and they'll do something like if somebody needs to quarantine, they'll give them money so that they can stay home. So I, I think that's the kind of solution that, that we have to have. Now, those are kind of shorter term issues for those things, but there are also, you know, longer term issues, minimum wage to make sure people are a little bit more financially secure, you know, addressing the housing crisis is a very important issue for the spread of infectious diseases, for example. But there are short term things that can kind of put you on that path to addressing some of the longer term issues. And, you know, for the first time, I think people are really realizing these things matter to everyone. You know, for a long time, we might say, you know, uh, we're all connected. And, you know, I might believe that you might believe that, but a lot of people might think like, I'm not connected. You know, that's a completely different world from the world that I live in. Um, yeah. But what a pandemic brings out is that we really are connected. And the health of people who are living in, in desperate circumstances is very connected to whether there's a lot of infectious disease circulating and, and whether everyone else is at risk for getting sick. So, so that's one part of your, your question. For the part about why when people get sick, are they more likely to die? That has a lot to do with underlying health conditions. We know that African-American Latino populations have much higher rates of chronic illness, uh, hypertension, diabetes, for example. And those are direct uh, predictors of a higher risk of serious illness from COVID. Now, the question is, well, then why? You don't just stop there and go, oh, that's, you know, okay, that makes sense. No, it doesn't make sense. Why do right. Um, right. certain groups have higher rates of untreated chronic illness? And that has to do with a whole other set of challenges, um, including uh, an inequitable healthcare system at baseline where some people can just like, you know, call up a doctor, see him that day, go get a prescription, they're good. Someone else, you know, can't really get to a doctor that easily, doesn't have coverage or uh, there aren't providers in their neighborhood. Um, it also has to do with the access to, to food and recreation, um, which is not equally distributed. So yeah. we we have these underlying structural challenges that put people at risk. And, you know, there are some things to do in the short term for that, too, which include essentially creating workarounds for the healthcare system, call centers, immediate telemedicine visits, even if you don't have a regular doctor. But again, there are these big you know issues that are going to require attention um, if we're going to be able to avoid this risk in the future. One thing that we we also have to understand is a federal response to this becomes incredibly important. You know, you you have been uh, you have been uh, you know so clear and but also so you know uh, also critical of the federal government's response to COVID nineteen, saying that they aren't taking it seriously enough as a public health crisis and all the other residual effects. What do you think the federal government should have done differently, and what can they be doing differently now? So um, there's sort of the long view of what the federal government could have been doing differently, and then the short-term view. So 
for long term, meaning long term looking backwards, I think to a certain extent we prepared for situations like this, but not really for this situation, uh, maybe as well as we could. I think we underinvested in the kinds of more uh, general response capacities, the stockpiling of swabs, for example, um, thinking a little bit more creatively about what would be necessary to stand up new diagnostic tests. And uh, there were some, you know, plans to do more, like um, be able to make a lot of N95 uh, masks, protective equipment that were allowed to lapse. So I think we didn't do a great job heading in to this compared to some other countries. I'll just point out that countries that were really the most prepared were the ones in Asia. And that's probably because they sort of had a near-death experience with SARS in 2003. And they, you know, dramatically invested in some of these response capacities because they really knew how much was at stake. Then there's the short-term preparedness issue, which is, okay, you are where you are and now this is coming. Do you take it seriously or not? And there's no question the federal government did not take it seriously enough. You know, there were just too many confusing messages, too many false kind of hopes, statements that this will just go away to zero. Um, and that really inhibited the ability of the federal government to mobilize. The stories that federal government had the opportunity to buy a lot of protective equipment early on and didn't do that are just, you know, infuriating um, when you read them next to uh, stories of healthcare workers who gave their lives because they didn't have adequate equipment. And uh, more generally, even to this day, I think there's a lot to be critical of with the federal response. It's very confusing messaging. Uh, people really uh, could turn on the TV and you have no idea what you're going to hear from the federal government. Is it, um, this is a serious problem, we all have to be very, very careful, or is it, you know, liberate the state and go out and do your thing, you know? And it, uh, I teach a course called Public Health uh, Crisis and Response. And one of the big lessons is that when you give people multiple messages, they will believe the message that is the easiest for them often. And so, it, you know, it's not surprising that people are, you know, flooding bars when the bars open uh, because they have been giving so many multiple messages. And just one last point on this, which is I think it is just astounding that the response to a pandemic like this has become such a partisan issue. We're really finding that this virus in just doing what it does biologically is really taking advantage of serious fault lines that exist in our society. And as things get politicized, people stop believing anything. I mean, I have had conversations and seen people who, you know, they practically don't believe there is a virus because they've been told that it's not not to worry about. Even when um, you can show them how many people are dying in their communities or how New York um, has had so many thousands of deaths. When uh, one, of, one of the concepts that, uh, that people are talking about oftentimes is this idea of, of contact tracing. What exactly is contact tracing and why is it so vital? in this fight against the coronavirus? Sure, so contact tracing is a public health strategy to reduce the spread of an infectious disease. And contact tracing existed before coronavirus and it's been adapted for the coronavirus. And the idea is pretty simple. We're going to find who has the virus. We're gonna help that person. We're gonna find who they might've given it to. We're gonna help those people and we're gonna encourage that whole group to stay on their own so that there is no place for that virus to go. There's no other person who can get infected. And if you do that, you can shut off the chains of transmission. Now, it's hard to find every single person, but if you can find a lot of those people, if you can reduce the risk of spread somewhat, because this is such a dangerous virus, that really can help reduce the number of cases over time. 
In other words, what we'd like to do is respond specifically to cases of coronavirus, reduce the chance that those spread around the community instead of responding generally and having to tell everyone to stay at home. So this is a public health technique of you know people working together to thwart the virus that um, avoids the need for major economic shutdowns. And so, and I know Hawkins is actually uh, uh, you know helping to lead the charge on you know this actually the classes on this idea of, of contact tracing. Uh, what does the training look like to get people to become contact tracers? You know, how, how, do we, how do we build up an infrastructure that we can support the amount of contact tracers that we're going to need? And what are some of the prerequisites that, uh, that, are, that are there and, and needed? Um, we do have a course. It's on the Coursera platform. Or you could just type into a search engine, Johns Hopkins contact tracing course. It's online, it's free. Anyone can take it for free. And in our first four days, we had over 80,000 people sign up. And um, the course is about six hours long. It uh, explains the basics about the virus and how it's transmitted, how contact tracing works. We actually hired some local actors and actresses to play um, people with coronavirus and their contacts to, so we could do simulated conversations so you see what it's really like. There's a section about the ethics of contact tracing, including privacy and confidentiality. And then there's a section on interviewing to help people feel comfortable asking questions um, to people um, and helping them understand what's going on. It only requires a high school education, the course, um, because uh, the idea of the instructor, who is Dr. Emily Gurley, is that you don't need a science degree to be a good contact tracer. You do need to understand enough about the virus to spread. You need to understand how it's spread and the timelines um, for when people need to isolate and quarantine and what isolation and quarantine are. So there's some scientific concepts that can be taught. But really, this boils down to calling people up, talking to them, giving them confidence about what we need to do together and working with them to identify people who they may have given it to so that those people and their their loved ones, frankly, can be protected. And so it's it's sort of community members working with community members to fight the virus. That's what contact tracing is, you know, when you strip everything else away. So, so Josh, let me ask you one more question. And, uh, and, and really, it's a question thinking as a, as a parent. Do you have any tips for parents or teachers to help them help them with the young people in their lives who are helping to stick by the safety guidelines? And how do you think that we should be thinking about that in the conversation about the reopening of schools and also the uh, reopening of everything from community centers and places where that have really become lifesavers in many cases for our kids prior to this, but also become very complicated parts of the conversation now when social distancing becomes so necessary? So this is a very difficult challenge. Um, and it's difficult because the science is still evolving. So you have evidence that kids can get coronavirus infection, that they can pass it on, some lack of clarity about how much they get it, how much they pass it on. There is a low, low risk of a serious lung infection um, in kids. Um, almost all the kids who get serious lung infections are at high risk because of underlying conditions that may be known beforehand, so extra precautions can be taken. On the other hand, there is uh, new evidence of a potential post-infection complication called Kawasaki disease, which is a serious vasculitis. And there's some evidence that three kids died from this in New York. So while it's lower risk for kids and those cases of vasculitis are quite rare, 
it's not no risk for kids. So you have that. And you also have the fact that some kids live with parents and grandparents or other older adults and could be carriers essentially carrying the, the virus home and uh, putting their lives at risk. And uh, I think right now, uh, while we're in this period of, um, you know, still many cases in the city, um, we really want to reduce the contacts that kids have to the extent possible. And, you know, that doesn't mean that kids have to be in solitary confinement, but it also doesn't mean kids should be running around with, you know, 20, 30 other friends. It's probably better now to be sticking to a consistent group of friends and not mixing a lot trying to find ways for kids to be occupied as much as possible. Uh, school is going to be coming to an end soon. The summer is going to be challenging. But small groups of kids, the same kids all the time, is better than like large groups of kids are mixing a lot. Then you get to the big question, which is, well, what do you do in the fall? And, you know, a couple things. We may have more information about the virus over the summer. We might have some news about some early therapeutics that might you know, affect our calculations a little bit um, about what uh, needs to be done. Um, right now, I think it's important for school systems to have a few different options at their disposal as we're waiting to see how the situation clarifies. I think probably every school system is going to need to be thinking about an online only option. Not that that's going to be necessary, but if there is a big second, you know, wave of infections, if flu hits, if there's a public health emergency that requires shutting down the schools. The schools need to be able to shift gears. Um, and then there probably should be a couple other levels. You know, one level might be a low risk level, which brings kids to school, but cancels large gatherings and limits the number of kids that they're going to be having contact with, particularly in the lower grades where social distancing is much harder. Another level might be uh, greater where you have kids who are in school for certain days and out of school for other days. Each school system is going to have to think about what is practical in those areas and have a few different gears to go between. We've been speaking with Dr. Josh Sharfstein, who's the Vice Dean for Public Health Practice and Community Engagement at the Johns Hopkins University School of Public Health. Uh, and he's also the uh, former Secretary, Health Secretary for the State of Maryland and the Health Commissioner for the City of Baltimore. Dr. Sharfstein, thank you for your consistent voice and for your leadership uh, in this time and also beyond. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much for, for having me, Wes, and I really appreciate everything you're doing for the city. We have to take another break, but do not go away. When we come back, we'll hear about how one Indian state went from being the first place in the country with COVID-19 infections to being lauded for its response to the virus. Welcome back, I'm Wes Moore, and you are listening to Future City here on WYPR the monthly show that explores innovative approaches to Baltimore's most pressing issues and where we move the conversation from what's wrong to what's next. On this month's show, we're discussing local and global responses to COVID-19. As we close out today's show, we're taking a look at one Indian state, Kerala, that's being lauded as a model for coronavirus response. Is there anything the U.S., Maryland, or Baltimore can learn from Kerala's COVID-19 response. I'm excited now that joining the discussion is Sam Agarwal. Sam Agarwal is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at the Johns Hopkins University, and she studies agrarian political economy of the global South. Sam, thank you so much for joining us. Really appreciate your time today. Thank 
you, Wes, for having me on the show. I actually want to first start by asking about India's first cases of COVID-19. And they were found in the southern Indian state of Kerala. How did the local government use contact tracing to respond to the outbreak in Kerala? India is currently entering into its fourth phase of a nationwide lockdown, um, which was first announced by the prime minister on March 24th. At that time, Kerala, with a population that frequently travels abroad for work and study, accounted for the highest number of coronavirus cases in the country. To give you some context, right now, you know, seven weeks later, it ranks only 17th highest in the number of COVID-19 cases in the country. And as India's active caseload continues to rise, despite implementing this extremely severe lockdown, Kerala's caseload has fallen by roughly two-thirds. Um, and its recovery rate, which stands at around 94%, is higher than any other state in India, including um, the much more wealthy and industrialized states like Maharashtra and Gujarat. This remarkable reality and outcomes in Kerala can be explained by their approach to contact tracing, screening, and isolation measures. Kerala is governed by a coalition of left parties known as the Left Front. It is led by the Communist Party of India, Marxist, or the CPIM. And while the left front kind of cycles in and out of power every other election, um, they by and large have shaped the policy agenda of the state and have done so um, since the late 1950s. In combating COVID-19, the left front's epidemiological approach has consisted of kind of a one-two punch, right, of aggressive contact tracing and large-scale quarantining. And in that regard, the state has been using innovative and painstaking methods of crowdsourcing data to track down all of those who have come into contact with potential coronavirus patients. And then after these people are identified, they are screened. And depending on the result of that screening, they're being quarantined, either at home or in the hospital, depending on their situation. Um, and, you know, at one point, I think they had around 100,000 people under home quarantine, just to give you an idea of the numbers. And, you know, their quarantine measures last uh, almost twice as long as they do in the United States and in other countries. So generally, they last for 28 days. On top of, you know, these epidemiological efforts, the state has implemented very strong social welfare provisions. For example, on March 19th, the Kerala government announced a very large stimulus package, $2.9 billion, which included things like early distribution of pensions, uh, midday meals for low-income children, food grain rations, um, and they've also been constructing thousands of shelters for migrant laborers who, due to these, this nationwide lockdown, were stranded in the state and couldn't return home. This is a very different approach than what the Indian government has implemented. The Indian government has done appallingly little to provide for um, the millions of migrant laborers who are stranded in different, different parts of the country right now. The state has been leaning very heavily on its vast network of grassroots movements and volunteers. Just as an example, in addition to all the normal frontline workers, the state has been working with basically an army of grassroots volunteers. One estimate pinned at 235,000 volunteers and then hundreds of civil society organizations. To give you a sense of what they're doing, they've been manufacturing very large quantities of masks and hand sanitizers. They've been delivering, you know, books, medicine, groceries, 
to people who are in home quarantine. Um, they've been staffing a mental health hotline. One of the things that I know I took away from uh, the, the, the Kerala uh, model is even if it didn't have the national push behind it, you had an individual state that basically could say, we're going to lead in this way. And we think that not only is it going to work to better protect our people, but it's then going to serve as an important model. It's difficult to put together a model for a country as large as India, as it is difficult to put together a model as large as the United States. You know, the, the federalist system is that you have individual states that need to be able to make individual decisions based on their specific populations. How should governors be thinking about this and, and, and how the Kerala model really showed itself in a, in a dynamic of having knowing how difficult it was to push a national policy, but they were able to do something that was not able to both protect their people, but also serve as an important national model. Yeah, I mean, Kerala is a, is a really interesting and important case to look at. It's a state within a much, much larger country um, that with very limited resources, with an extremely dense population, and also with an aging population, has managed to do a whole lot. That's kind of the crux of the Kerala model, that it's been able to achieve almost first world level development indicators um, with a very low cost. I think that we really need to completely rethink the structure um, of our society, and we need to start studying these examples, even if they're small examples like Kerala, in order to get on the right path. I've been speaking with Sam Agarwal. Sam Agarwal is a PhD student in the Department of Sociology at Johns Hopkins University. She studies agrarian political economy of the global south. Sam, thank you so much both for your insights and for joining us today and for really providing us with a tremendous amount to think about and act on in the future. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much. As we wrap up, I just want to, as always, just leave everybody with a few thoughts. The impact of COVID-19 has been unprecedented, both on the health and economic side. We have watched how a virus that we were unprepared for has left us nationally flat-footed and our most vulnerable communities terribly susceptible. Tens of thousands of people have lost their lives and tens of millions have had their lives upended. From sustained hospital visits to sustained unemployment, our community has been left reeling by a virus that we still don't know everything about, nor do we yet have a medical answer to. The only proven answer that we have thus far has nothing to do with medicine or vaccines. It has nothing to do with immunizations or therapeutics. It simply has to do with us, our behavior, our patience, our resiliency, our distance togetherness. The reason we have watched curves flatten and transmission rates and death rates fall in certain communities around this country is simply due to our communal ability to follow the guidance of our public health leaders and officials, some of whom you heard from on the show today. Socially distance. Use masks and other forms of PPE when in public. Stay home if you can. We don't have a confirmed timeline on how long these instructions will be needed. The only thing that we do know is that for right here and right now, they still are. We have to be able to address the underlying and historic health challenges that have made the most vulnerable the most vulnerable. We have to be able to confront and be honest about the fact that this virus has impacted all of us, but it has not been an equal opportunity foe, and both understand why and what we need to do about it. 
We also have to approach this with a humanity to understand that nobody in our community is dispensable simply because of age or occupation or pre-existing condition. When thinking about our future city, part of the takeaway must be that in order to strengthen the future for some of us, it means strengthening the present for all of us. Feature City is produced and edited by Mark Gunnery. We welcome your feedback, and you can email us with your thoughts and questions about the show at futurecity at wypr.org. Also, feel free to contact me directly on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at I am Westmore. If you want to learn more about some of the people and organizations you heard from today, or if you want to listen to previous episodes, just visit wypr.org and look for Future City under the Programs and Features tab. Feature City airs here on WYPR on the third Wednesday of each month at 1 p.m. and then again at 9 p.m. So until next time, for 88.1 WYPR, your NPR news station, I'm Westmore. Future City is made possible by McCormick & Company. Through its Flavor for Life program, McCormick helps teach kids and families in Baltimore how to replace salt, sugar, and fat. More information can be found at mccormickcorporation.com.